Back in 1870, when only 85 people lived along the coast of southeastern Florida, an estimated 2 million wading birds inhabited the Everglades during dry seasons. During the late 19th century, plume hunting reduced these birds to only several hundred thousand. This dramatic loss spurred protective laws in Florida and in New York, where the plumes had been shipped to millinery houses. Thus protected, the wading bird population rebounded to near its original level. Then in the 1940s and after, the character of the Everglades itself began to change. As South Florida grew, the Everglades shrank, its waters controlled for man's uses. By the mid-1970s, wading bird numbers had dropped back to a few hundred thousand, about 10% of what it had been a century before. Biologists actively study these birds, looking for clues that might lead to stopping or even reversing the decline. As yet, the only thing that is certain is that life in the Everglades is more fragile than anyone ever thought. That's a passage from Jack DeGolia's Everglades, the story behind the scenery from 1978. I'm Jason Epperson, and on this episode of America's National Parks, Everglades National Park protects 1.5 million acres of Florida's southern tip. It's the first federal land protected not for beauty, but for conservation. But the creation of the park was only the beginning. The Everglades have spent the last hundred years under siege. Our story is of the woman who protected them time and time again, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. These are the opening words from Douglas's seminal book, The Everglades, River of Grass. There are no other Everglades in the world. They are, they have always been, one of the unique regions of the earth, remote, never wholly known. Nothing anywhere else is like them. An apt description of the land, but also of Marjorie herself, a true American hero, whose story is anything but average. As a young child in Minnesota, Marjorie Stoneman's father Frank read her the Song of Hiawatha, Longfellow's Native American lore poem set in the pictured rocks on the south shore of Lake Superior. The young Marjorie burst into tears upon realizing a tree would give its life to provide Hiawatha the wood for a canoe. At the age of six, Marjorie's parents separated. 
Her father's failed business ventures caused her mother Lillian, a concert violinist, to take Marjorie to her grandparents' Massachusetts home, where she lived with her mother, aunt, and grandparents, who disparaged her father whenever they had the chance. Throughout her childhood, Marjorie, who suffered from night terrors, would watch as her mother battled with mental illness, a battle she was never fully able to overcome. Marjorie escaped the turmoils at home in books, eventually beginning to write herself. By her late teens, she had multiple short stories published and had been awarded a prize by the Boston Herald for a story about a boy who watches a sunrise from a canoe. But as her mother's health declined, Marjorie took on many of the family's responsibilities, eventually managing the family finances. Despite her burdens, her aunt and grandmother sent her off for Wellesley College in 1908, recognizing that she needed to begin her own life. A model student, she graduated with a BA in English in 1912. Her mother died of breast cancer shortly after. Marjorie Stoneman met Kenneth Douglas, a newspaper editor 30 years her senior in 1914. In a whirlwind romance, they married in three months. It's not exactly known what his misdeeds were, but it became clear that Kenneth Douglas was a con artist. Marjorie stayed with him while he spent six months in jail for writing a bad check. But when he tried to scam her estranged father, she ended the marriage. The con turned out to be fortuitous as Marjorie Stoneman Douglas was reunited with Frank Stoneman, whom she had not seen since moving away. In the fall of 1915, she left Massachusetts for Miami to live with her father, who was the editor of the paper which would eventually become the Miami Herald. Already an accomplished writer, Marjorie joined the paper as a society columnist, but since fewer than 5,000 people lived in Miami at the time, the news was slow and she'd have to make up many of the people in the stories. Residents would ask about the characters they had never met, and she'd concoct elaborate accounts of their recent arrival to Miami. In print, Frank Stoneman intensely attacked the governor of Florida, Napoleon Bonaparte Broward, for his endeavors to drain the Everglades. When Stoneman ran for a circuit judgeship and won, Broward refused to certify the election. Frank Stoneman was referred to as judge for the rest of his life without ever taking the bench. In 1917, as World War I was raging in Europe, the Navy sent a ship to enlist men and women into the reserves. Marjorie was assigned to cover the story of a local woman who was to be the first Miami woman to enlist. The woman didn't show, so Marjorie decided she would take her place. She joined the Navy, became a yeoman first class, and was stationed in Miami. Already leading a tough life forced into early maturity, the military didn't suit Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. She was no fan of rising early, and the officers were not fans of her grammar corrections. She requested and was granted a discharge, at which time she joined the American Red Cross who sent her off to Paris. There she cared for refugees until the war ended and her father cabled for her to come home and take over as the assistant editor of the now Miami Herald. Her new column, The Galley, made Stoneman Douglas a local celebrity. The Galley was about whatever she wanted it to be about that week. She spoke out for responsible urban planning when Miami's population increased tenfold in a decade. She supported women's suffrage and civil rights and opposed prohibition and tariffs. 
She began to talk about Florida's landscape and geography. By 1923, her success and the pressure of writing her column and conflicts with the paper's publisher got to Marjorie. She began to experience blackouts and was diagnosed with nerve fatigue. She left the Herald and began to recover by sleeping late and writing short stories. The Saturday Evening Post published 40 of them, along with those of Fitzgerald and Hemingway. Most were fiction. Her protagonists were often independent women who encountered social injustice. The people and animals of the Everglades were the background of others, and some were nonfiction. Wings addressed the slaughter of Everglade birds for fashionable ladies' hats. She was commissioned to write a pamphlet called An Argument for the Establishment of a Tropical Botanical Garden in Southern Florida, causing her to become a fixture at garden clubs where she delivered speeches. She became a part of the Miami theater scene, writing one-act plays, one loosely modeled on the life of Al Capone, whose henchmen showed up to check in on it. In 1926, she designed and built the cottage in which she lived for the rest of her life. Becoming ever more the socialite, she became a forceful pioneer in the fights for feminism, racial justice, and conservation. She fought against poverty, slumlords, and poor sanitation. And she fought for the Everglades. In the early 40s, Douglas was approached to contribute to a book series called The Rivers of America. She was asked to write about the Miami River, which she said was about an inch long, and instead persuaded the publisher to allow her to write about the Everglades. She spent five years researching the little-known ecology of the area, spending time with a geologist who discovered that South Florida's sole freshwater source was the Biscayne Aquifer, which was filled by the Everglades. The Everglades, River of Grass, was published in 1947 and sold out in a month. The book's first line, There are no other Everglades in the world, is easily the most famous line written about South Florida. She wrote about an ecosystem inescapably connected to South Florida's people and cultures. Everglades National Park officially opened in 1947, the same year River of Grass was published. The book became one of the most famous environmental calls to action in history, causing citizens and politicians to take notice. It was, in fact, a blueprint for many of the Everglades restoration projects that are still ongoing today. By the 1960s, the Everglades were in imminent danger of disappearing forever. In response to floods caused by hurricanes in 1947, the Central and Southern Florida Flood Control Project was established to construct flood control mechanisms in the Everglades. 1,400 miles of canals and levees were built across the course of 20 years. The C-38 Canal, the last built, straightened the Kissimmee River 
inflicting catastrophic damage on the habitats and water quality of South Florida. Douglas initially gave the project her approval, as it promised to deliver much needed water to the shrinking Everglades. But in reality, it diverted water away from the Everglades to meet sugarcane farmers' needs. The Army Corps of Engineers refused to release water to Everglades National Park until much of the land was unrecognizable. Douglas fought fervently against the Corps of Engineers and sugarcane farmers, saying, their mommies must have never let them play with mud pies, so now they play with cement. She was giving a speech addressing the harmful practices of the Army Corps of Engineers when the colonel in attendance dropped his pen. As he stooped to pick it up, she stopped her speech and said, Colonel, you can crawl under the table and hide, but you can't get away from me. In 1969, at age 79, Douglas formed Friends of the Everglades. Dues were $1, and the purpose was to raise awareness of the potential devastation a huge jet port slated for construction in the fragile wetlands would cause. Due to Marjorie's perseverance and the support of her 3,000 Friends of the Everglade members and other environmental groups, President Nixon scrapped funding for the project after one runway was built which still exists today. Douglas spent the rest of her life defending the Everglades. In his introduction to her autobiography, Voice of the River, John Rothschild described her appearance at a 1973 public meeting as half the size of her fellow speakers, and she wore huge dark glasses, which along with her huge floppy hat, made her look like Scarlett O'Hara as played by Igor Stravinsky. When she spoke, everyone stopped slapping mosquitoes and more or less came to order. She reminded us all of our responsibility to nature, and I don't remember what else. Her voice had the sobering effect of a one-room school marms. The tone itself seemed to tame the rowdiest of the local stonecrabbers, plus the developers and the lawyers on both sides. I wonder if it didn't also intimidate the mosquitoes. The request for a Corps of Engineers permit was eventually turned down. This was no surprise to those of us who'd heard her speak. Douglas also opposed the drainage of a suburb in Dade County named East Everglades. After the county approved building permits, the land flooded as it had for centuries. Homeowners demanded the Army Corps of Engineers drain their neighborhoods, and Marjorie was the only opposition. At a 1983 hearing, the 93-year-old was booed and shouted at by the residents. Can't you boo any louder than that, she said. Look, I'm an old lady and I've been here since 8 o'clock. It's now 11. I've got all night and I'm used to the heat. County commissioners eventually decided not to drain the land. Until the day she died, Douglas continued to fight for her causes. She served as a charter member of the first American Civil Liberties Union chapter organized in the South. She spoke on the floor of the Florida State Legislature, urging them to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. She bolstered the Florida Rural Legal Services, a group that worked to protect migrant farm workers employed by the sugarcane industry. She co-founded the Friends of Miami-Dade Public Libraries and served as its first president. The 
the Florida Department of Natural Resources named its headquarters in Tallahassee after her in 1980, to which she said she would have rather seen the Everglades restored than her name on a building. In 1986, the National Parks Conservation Association instituted the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Award, honoring individuals who advocate and fight for the protection of the national park system. And in 1991, at the age of 100, blind and near deaf, Douglas was visited by Queen Elizabeth II, to whom she gave a signed copy of The Everglades, River of Grass. Douglas asked that trees be planted on her 100th birthday in lieu of gifts, resulting in over 100,000 planted across the state of Florida, including a bald cypress on the lawn of the governor's mansion. In 1993, President Clinton awarded Marjorie Stoneman Douglas the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest honor given to a civilian. She donated it to Wellesley College. Douglas once said that, Conservation is now a dead word. You can't conserve what you haven't got. She died in 1998 at the age of 108. Her ashes were scattered in the Everglades she worked so tirelessly to preserve. That was Abigail Trabue. Daniel Beard, who would become the first superintendent of the Everglades National Park, wrote in 1938 that the southern Florida wilderness scenery is a study in halftones, not bright broad strokes of a full brush as is the case of most of our other national parks. There are no knife-edged mountains protruding up into the sky, there are no valleys of any kind, no glaciers exist, no gaudy canyons, no geysers, no mighty trees, unless we accept the few royal palms not even a rock-bound coast with the spray of ocean waves, none of the things we are used to seeing in our parks. Instead, there are lonely distances, intricate and monotonous waterways, birds, sky, and water. To put it crudely, there is nothing in the Everglades that will make Mr. Johnny Q. Public suck in his breath. This is not an indictment against the Everglades as a national park, because breath-sucking is still not the thing we are striving for in preserving wilderness areas. The sentiment aside, Daniel Beard was wrong. There's plenty to suck in your breath at in the Everglades. No, you won't be brought to your knees like many are at the first sight of the Grand Canyon. But I challenge anyone to tell me of another national park with such an array of wildlife immediately on display. It is indeed a magical place, but it's true more than beauty the Everglades National Park is an important place. There's a great book called The Wonder of It All, A Hundred Stories from the National Park Service. It's a collection of stories from Park Service employees and volunteers. In it, Ranger David Cronk talks of a 1990 visit to the Everglades from President George H.W. Bush. Cronk led the president and some children who were finishing a three-day educational program on a walk. He asked the children to tell the president what the Everglades meant to them. Among some other pithy answers, one girl described the limited water supply in South Florida, saying we need to conserve and share the water so that there is enough for the animals and plants in the park. Later that month, President Bush would mention meeting some budding young environmentalists at the Everglades in his State of the Union address. 
An eight-year study was commissioned by Congress the following year, and the comprehensive Everglades Restoration Project was authorized in 2000. At a cost of more than $10.5 billion, and with a 35-year timeline, it is the largest hydraulic restoration project ever undertaken in the United States. To help restore water flow, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service established the Everglades Headwaters National Wildlife Refuge and Conservation Area in 2011. Though the comprehensive Everglades restoration project continues today, it has been compromised by politics and funding problems, and the Everglades are still in danger. The primary access to the Everglades National Park is through Florida City, 30 miles southeast of Miami, at the Ernest F. Coe Visitor Center. A few miles into the park is the Royal Palm Visitor Center, where you can hike two popular wheelchair-accessible half-mile trails, seeing the marshes, alligators, and wading birds, along with Royal Palms and gumbo limbo trees with their peeling bark. You can then journey on the main park road 38 miles to the Flamingo Visitor Center on the southern tip of the state. On the way, you'll wander through the park's various ecosystems and can stop at three short walks, including an overlook where you can get a view of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's River of Grass, and another where you can see the largest mahogany tree in the United States. At Flamingo, you'll see the true diversity of the park's waterfowl, spoonbills, ibises, snowy egrets, blue herons, and the like, wading among the mangrove trees. The area was heavily damaged during Hurricane Irma, but the campground has been partially reopened. Boat tours that depart here have been suspended, but canoe and kayak rentals are now available again. From the north on US 41, visitors can enter the park at Shark Valley, named because its water flows southwest towards Shark River. Here you can walk, bike, or ride a tram along a 15 mile loop road and see some of the park's best wildlife concentrations. The Shark Valley Observation Tower offers a 360-degree view of the Everglades and a bird's-eye view of alligators, turtles, fish, and birds. From the Gulf Coast Visitor Center in the town of Everglades City, you can launch your boat or take a scheduled sightseeing boat tour to explore the vast mangrove estuary of the 10,000 islands. Backcountry camping, accessible by boat, is available from both the Flamingo and Gulf Coast areas. You can take an eight-day canoe trip down the maze of waterways, camping on elevated platforms along the way. The park is open year-round, but summers can be steamy, hot, and buggy. The dry season, from December to April, is your best chance at seeing the park's diverse array of birds. You may have heard Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's name in the news recently. The Florida high school that suffered one of the world's deadliest shootings on February 14th is named after her. It's right near the Everglades. You can donate to the school at msdstrong.us. This episode of America's National Parks was written and produced by me, Jason Epperson, and narrated by Abigail Trebue. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. I was walking, I saw a sign there, 
The America's National Parks podcast is part of the RV Miles Network of web resources for United States travelers. If you're interested in RV travel, give us a listen over at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and I as we travel the country in our converted school bus with our three boys at OurWanderingFamily.com and all over social media. The America's National Parks podcast is a production of Lotus Theatricals, LLC.